0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Jay Bartlett, a research associate here at RFF, about his recent work on developing wind energy. Jay will tell us about how wind projects actually get built, that is, how developers raise money for their projects and who they sell their electricity to. We'll also talk about how state and federal policies shape these markets and how the coming changes in the policy landscape are likely to affect future wind development. Stay with us. Okay, Jay Bartlett, my colleague at Resources for the Future, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you for having me. So, Jay, we're going to talk about a recent working paper that you wrote about wind energy in the United States and some of the uh, financing structures around uh, developing wind energy. But can you first tell us a little bit about how you got interested in energy and uh,
1: environmental issues in the first place? Yeah, it was uh, interesting because my first two jobs had very little to do with energy policy, sort of on the face of it. Uh, My first job was as a biophysics researcher, and my second job was as an investment banking analyst. Um, But the interesting thing with finance is I've found it to be particularly useful in energy policy. Uh, Finance really sort of asks the question, you know, is an incentive valuable enough and how risky is it? And I think those two parts end up being very important when you're looking at energy policy.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm really glad that you have a finance background, uh, because I'm going to need your help uh, understanding some of the finance issues that you talked through in, in your paper that we're going to talk about. So I'm looking forward to learning from you about that. Um, the name of the working paper, so our audience can look it up. We'll also have a link to it on the show page. But the name of the paper is Reducing Risk in Merchant Wind and Solar Projects Through Financial Hedges. And so we'll kind of unpack that over the next uh, 20, 25 minutes. Uh, but just a little bit of background first, which is uh, about the growth of wind energy in the United States. And we're really going to focus on wind today. So um, in 2005, wind accounted for less than 1% of total net electricity generation in the United States. Uh, in 2018, it was more than 7%. So really amazing rapid growth in wind energy in the U.S. Uh, development is taking place in in 40 states uh, of the United States. There are at least some wind turbines in 40 of the U.S. states, with the largest producers uh, being Texas, Oklahoma, Iowa, and Kansas. So with that little bit of background in place, Jay, can you tell us the two main ways in which wind energy developers actually sell the electricity that they generate and also explain why a developer might prefer one option over another?
1: Of course. Uh, yeah. So I think the first thing I should mention is the vast majority of wind projects are not owned by EV utility. You know, that's less than 10% of the market. So for the vast majority of wind projects, as you said, they're owned by a project developer. And they have these sort of these two choices on how they're going to sell. Either they can sell under a long term contract uh, known as a power purchase agreement or a PPA, Mm -hmm. or they can sell into the wholesale markets. Um, So we call sort of uh, wind generators selling into the wholesale markets merchant generators. Mm -hmm. And the, really the choice between a PPA and a merchant uh, arrangement for a wind project developer is really sort of a classic trade-off of risk and return. A PPA has the advantages of being low risk, uh, but it also is rather low return. Um, a merchant uh, structure is quite the opposite.
0: Right. And so when operators make each of those two choices who is on the other end of the transaction. So if it's a PPA, who is entering into that long-term relationship with the Wind developer? And if it's a merchant uh merchant generator, then like what is the pool uh that it is bidding into and, and who's on the other side of it?
1: Yeah, so for the vast majority of PPAs uh for wind in the US are with utilities. Uh so in that case, you really have quite a limited pool of potential customers. You're talking about utilities, utility co-ops. Uh, and that's really the reason why PPA prices get pretty low, because you have all these uh, wind projects that are competing for them, and it's a low-risk structure. So that's driving PPA prices down. Um, if you're a merchant uh, generator, you're selling it to the wholesale market. Uh, the buyers of the, that electricity could be any participant in that market. hmm and then, as we'll sort of discuss a little later, what you'll have is you'll have a counterparty with your hedge. Maybe that's sort of jumping a bit ahead. but uh, So you'll have another sort of party involved, but it won't be uh, an actual contract with, uh, uh, with an electricity offtaker.
0: Uh-huh, well, yeah, so let's get into that that issue of hedging so um so as you mentioned when when developers choose to operate as merchant generators, your paper talks about how they they typically use these financial hedges so again for uh, for ignorance like me, can you uh get us up to speed on what financial hedges are uh and second why why is it useful for a developer to um to to dive into one?
1: Yeah, so the hedges that we're looking at are you could really refer to them as swap contracts. Uh, what the developer is doing is they're swapping uh, the actual electricity prices that they will receive for a predetermined fixed price. So you have one party, which is the developer, offering up actual electricity prices. The counterparty in that hedge is offering up a fixed price, and they're swapping the two of them. Uh-huh. So the developer is giving up some revenue Generally, the actual electricity prices are going to be greater than the fixed price they're getting in return. So the reason why they're doing that is basically they're getting more revenue certainty. They're almost sort of guaranteeing themselves you know, a certain amount of revenue. And that ends up being critically important because of the financing of these projects. I think one of the things that's important to, to know about wind projects, and this is true of solar as well, is that the project developer generally puts up a very small portion of the capital required to install these projects. So the other financiers uh, are usually debt providers, so a lender, a bank, Mm -hmm. um, and what's known as a tax equity investor that's necessary for these tax credits that we'll we'll talk about in a bit. So you have these two other parties to the transaction that are pretty risk-averse, you know, particularly a lender. Uh, you know, they want to see that constant um, you know, stream of interest payments. Any risk that puts that in jeopardy is something that they're going to strongly avoid. So a merchant project which has you know these fluctuating energy prices is a pretty unattractive proposition for a lender. So that's really kind of what is driving hedges uh, for merchant uh, wind projects.
0: Mhm.
1: And sort of similar
0: question to the follow up I had with the last question which is who's on the other side. So uh, so for a wind developer that's entering into a a, a hedge situation they are you know uh, going to have a stable more stable price uh that they receive but someone else is going to be subject to the volatility in prices that the wind developer is trying to avoid. So who's on the other side of that transaction? Who's taking on that volatility or that risk?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And um, th- th- that's a good question. So in the uh, in the paper, we look at five different possible hedging structures. Um, and so that counterparty is going to differ depending on uh, which hedging structure we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But in the most popular ones, um, uh, the two most popular hedging structures right now, one is called a bank hedge. And so in that case, as sort of the name would imply, the, uh, the counterparty is a financial institution and often it's the same financial institution that's helping with financing the project so often the same as as is the tax equity investor mm-hmm. so usually you know a sophisticated um, uh, investment bank that has a lot of business they're gonna be the ones that uh, are providing uh, that hedge product um, so that's sort of for bank hedges for the other structure that we see most common in the marketplace now uh, uh, is something called a synthetic PPA. And I, I won't sort of go into the weeds on it. But um, what's important with that is uh, instead of uh, a bank that's providing the hedge, it is a large corporation, a non-financial corporation. So all the deals that we've heard about recently, well, whether it's you know Facebook or Amazon or Google, um, making wind deals or solar deals, those are generally synthetic PPAs. So they're basically taking on that risk of uh, price volatility in return for renewable energy sort of over a 10 to 15 year period. Right.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Those deals have been in the news a lot and it would actually be great maybe to come back some other time and and talk about them in particular and what they mean and sort of how they're structured and all that. Um, but but let me take a step back and go back to these sort of two general approaches that you mentioned earlier. So one is the PPA, and the other is going to the merchant market uh, with a hedge. So uh, do we have the data to know whether one approach tends to be more profitable than another, or you know what what
1: in what situations one approach might be preferable? yeah so uh, our best data is from Texas and, and not surprising given the amount of wind that's been installed there over the last uh, uh, 10 15 years um, the most profitable uh, of those structures tends to be the riskiest uh, which is a, you know a pure merchant unhedged agreement mm-hmm. um, however that's very difficult to finance um, for sort of the reasons we just talked about uh, and so it's something you rarely see you know I came across one in 2017. There might be a couple others uh, in two thousand and eighteen, um, but the problem is it's very difficult to get you know a lender or a tax equity investor to commit to financing something that you know is totally unhedged in the future uh-huh. but if you were able to get it financed and a couple deals have been able to do that, it would be uh, the most profitable uh, possible venture and so it's it's really sort of that cause of trade off of risk and reward and so you know, the what I'd say, sort of, deals that are kind of in the middle of, you know, hedged uh, structures, are you know, higher profit uh, than a PPA, but you know, lower profit than a a pure uh, unhedged agreement. Uh huh.
0: Right. And so, if you're totally unhedged, you have the potential for a big upside, but you also have potential for a big downside, right?
1: Exactly. And I think one of the things that's sort of uh, important with this is that you. Know, you have differing incentives of the parties involved. So in the classic wind deal where you have uh, a bank providing the debt, a tax equity investor, and the project developer, um, you have varying incentives. The project developer sort of gets all the upside. The bank gets none of the upside. <laughs> so it's you're really sort of looking at, OK, sort of given the people involved um, or the, you know, the, the institutions involved, uh, what is going to be sufficient to make everybody you know, um, agree to this? Right. So that's I think sort of how to kind of look at a win deal and and, and the type of uh, uh, structures in terms of hedging that they end up choosing. Right. Interesting. So one other question that comes to mind is
0: the role that state government policies might play in this discussion and how it might affect incentives. So, you know, renewable portfolio standards, these are uh, fairly common policies in a variety of states where, you know, states require that a certain amount or a certain percentage of energy comes from a source like wind energy or solar energy. Um, but if let's say for example a state requires a certain amount of energy to come from wind, but project developers in that state are having a hard time finding a profitable way to develop all that energy. So so in this case economists might say the RPS is binding. Um what types of uh incentives uh exist that allow financiers to get involved and actually develop that project when it might not be profitable absent the the policy the RPS.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, in in that case, you yeah. know, because, as you said, it's sort of it would it's a binding uh, mandate. You'd see a really high REC price, really high renewable energy certificate price. Uh, that would overcome that shortage that would provide the necessary incentive for, say, a wind project to, to be financed and uh, and installed. Um, so, yeah, so the state policies, state RPS policies are and historically have been an important driver uh, of wind projects. But interesting, what we've seen in the last five years is the opposite. Uh, so in the last five years, we've seen uh, rec prices in most of the markets drop by about a third uh, or two, actually, two thirds, um, in fact, um, and we're also seeing more and more projects, uh, you know, more and more wind and solar projects, that aren't being used to meet a state RPS. Mm-hmm. So, in the beginning, you mentioned Texas and uh, Oklahoma and Kansas and Iowa. All those states, you know, either don't have RPSs or they've already exceeded them. So, you're seeing wind go into these states, you know, on a purely um, uh, or I should say, sort of without the need of an RPS to drive it, uh, wind has become sufficiently profitable, um, sufficiently competitive, that it doesn't often does not necessarily need uh, those uh, RPS policies to uh, to make the deal financeable. Right. And
0: around what time? I, I guess you said about five years ago. But um, do you have a sense of, you know, broadly speaking, what parts of the country are sort of exceeding the RPSs that are in place versus uh, where in the country RPSs are still binding for, for wind energy development?
1: Yeah. Uh, so really the sort of the center of the country where the greatest wind resource is, that sort yeah. of, you know, that path from Texas sort of up through Iowa and Minnesota, that's where you're seeing the most wind development. And most of the states didn't have particularly stringent RPS requirements. But because they had such a good wind resource, uh, that's where you're seeing the you know, sort of the majority of this wind go in, um, and that's particularly true on the merchant side. I mean, it's true for wind in general, but it's uh, uh, it's particularly true for for merchant wind.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, we had um, Sarah Mills, who's a researcher from the University of Michigan, on the show a number of weeks ago, and she referred to that middle part of the country as the wind belt. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, do people call it that? Is or is that something she made up? Is that a common term?
1: No, I think I've heard that. I've heard, I've heard that. I've heard, uh, you know, the Saudi Arabia of wind. I've heard you know, <laughs> various sort of uh, phrases to describe it, and it is a for for an onshore wind resource. It is, you know, it is pretty fantastic.
0: Mhm interesting so so we were just talking about state policy and, uh, RPS policies. Um, let's shift over and talk about an important federal policy, um, which is the production tax credit or the PTC. Um, that's been a tax credit that has sort of gone on and off sporadically over the last several decades. And it's provided, uh, a few cents for every kilowatt hour of wind energy that's been generated in the U S, um, since the 1990s. But, uh, but the PTC has been steadily declining over the last three years, uh, Due to an agreement reached, I want to say in 2015, and and the PTC scheduled to be phased out entirely at the end of this year, 2019, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, assuming it does uh, sunset into uh, into the distance, how uh, how is the removal of the PTC likely to affect the outlook for wind development um, over the next several years? And you know how might those those incentives vary in a place like the wind belt versus a place like you know New York State or another place where the wind resource might not be as great.
1: Yeah, well, interesting, actually, sort of for the next few years, it's going to be very strong uh, wind installations in the U.S. Um, so the reason behind it, when they came to that agreement uh, that you mentioned, um, one of the important parts is that those years that wind the wind PTC is phasing down the date that's in, or sort of the, the milestone that's important is that the wind project needs to commence construction before the end of that year. Right. And it's a pretty lenient um, uh, requirement. Um, one of the tests for that is just that the project spends, I believe it's 5% of the total project cost. So basically, you've had a lot of wind projects um, over the last several years meet that deadline. And so they will be installed over the next few years. Mm-hmm. I think I saw at the end of 2018 that the, uh, the pipeline for wind projects either you know, being constructed or in advanced development was 35 gigawatts. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of by comparison, last year about 7 gigawatts was installed. So it's you have a lot of projects that are sort of in the queue right now. So the next few years should be you know, basically sort of developers rushing to finish these projects, and that will yeah. be substantial. Yeah. Um, so then after that, say 2022, 23, you're going to have a big drop off. Um, interestingly, I, I was looking at the uh, uh, the annual energy outlook uh, recently, and EIA actually forecasts um, almost zero wind from two to 2022 onwards for mm-hmm. the next about 20 years because of The lack of PTC. Um, I'm not quite that pessimistic. I think you're still going to get like, you know, at least a fair amount of wind going in. Uh, But it does show how important the PTC has been to wind, um, and what other policies are going to be necessary to maintain the growth in wind. Uh, So I think you know, sort of going back to sort of our earlier uh, question about states, a lot of it will kind of kick it back to the states. Um, And that's been an encouraging thing over the past year. Um, Last year, it seemed to be that most RPS policies would sort of level off in the mid-2000s or mid-2020s. But in the last, I mean, it seems like every week or so, I get another announcement of another RPS policy being extended or sort of raised in its requirements. Uh, this includes California, so you know some some big states with some big markets. so I think to you know, you know um, the importance of state policy will be renewed over the next several years uh, as the PTC goes away and these projects are looking to something else to uh, uh, make sure they're financeable
0: right, and we do see these big you know commitments to uh, sort of rapid uh, decarbonization of the electricity sector in places like New York, California, even New Mexico, and in Washington State. So, so those might be sort of key drivers uh, going forward. Absolutely. The other thing that that came to mind as you were talking was um, the EIA and its uh, long-term projections for wind energy. Um, there's sort of a long, ongoing debate about, you know, how. Bullish or bearish, the EIA is about uh, wind energy and solar energy projections, and I'm not going to sort of go down that rabbit hole, but um, <laughs> but just want to just just want to note that that has been an area of discussion for a lot of energy folks who uh, some some who have argued that um, the EIA has um, sort of been been on the low side for for projecting the growth of renewables in particular.
1: Yeah, I should also mention that I think the uh, the most recent annual energy outlook you know, was. factored in RPS uh, policies as of maybe October of last year, so it doesn't actually sort of include a lot of the recent action. Um, So there's, you know, even sort of on a, a pure modeling basis, there's, you know, I think sort of room that has not been accounted for over the last several months of development.
0: Right. So one last topic uh, that I want to touch on with you is um, not po- not about policies, but more about markets, um, which is uh, the issue of low electricity prices. And this is something you talk about uh, in your paper in some detail. So uh, in the world of oil and gas, which is a world that I'm you know more familiar with than than wind finance. Um, U.S. companies have been producing more and more uh, oil and natural gas, and sometimes uh, folks in that industry might say that they're kind of eating their own lunch by overproducing oil or overproducing natural gas and crashing market prices. Um, does wind face that same type of risk as it grows so rapidly in some parts of the country and provides a larger share of uh, of the power mix?
1: You know, to some extent, and now I, here's a, I'll sort of a draw a contrast with solar, because I think with solar, you really see that dynamic. Um, yeah. If you've heard of like the duck curve in California, if you uh, <laughs> Google yeah. that, it's worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, because what we've seen in markets like California for solar is, even with you know, ten percent of solar on the grid, you see a strong depression in solar. Um, you know, midday prices, which, you know, obviously solar would benefit from. So it's, you know, I mean, those prices are down 50% plus in California over the last several years. So with solar, you really see that dynamic. Um, and, uh, you know, the advantage of solar is that relative to wind, it's more predictable. And. Um, but it also it's concentrated in like you know uh, very specific hours of the day, and so you really get that sort of dynamic. Wind is much less so, um, you know, because it's dispersed uh, throughout the day. You get some uh, price erosion, but not nearly to the same extent. Hmm. So it's that's something that I worry a lot a lot with solar, uh, and, and I think really argues for uh, the importance of storage and flexible demand. Um, I think that's important with wind, but not as much. Right. That makes sense.
0: I guess, I mean, I have seen the occasional news story uh, about negative electricity prices in the evenings, and my – my recollection is that those are often associated with, uh, with wind, um, maybe also nuclear a little bit. But um, but can you talk a little bit about those those negative prices and how uh, frequent they are, how important they are for uh, for wind projects?
1: Yeah, and that for for wind that's very much an effect of the policy in question, the production tax credit, right. uh, because wind projects receive that you know so long as they generate. So uh, you know. You know, at the the production tax credit value of you know, let's say a little over two cents per kilowatt hour, you know, even if the you know wholesale electricity price is negative, you know, even if it's negative you know, one and a half cents per kilowatt hour, you know, as a wind project, you're still going to want to generate, uh, so you make sure that you receive that PTC. So um, the negative prices with wind is very much a, a policy-driven uh, effect. Um, I would expect, as the PTC is declining, that that will be less of an issue. Yeah. Probably not something the designers of that policy had in mind when they put it together, something we would maybe refer to (laughs) as an unintended consequence. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, Jay Bartlett, thank you so much for... uh, telling us about all this stuff related to wind. It's really fascinating. And I I learned so much just over the last 20 minutes uh,
1: talking to you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So before we we let you go, uh, we want to do our final segment where we ask you what you've been reading or watching or listening to that you've been enjoying lately related to energy and the environment that you think might be really interesting uh, for our listeners and and something that you'd recommend. So I'll get us started with a couple of book recommendations. Uh, There are two books, one of which I finished and one of which I'm in the middle of, about Texas uh, that are really great. And for anyone interested in energy, I think you have to be interested in Texas, whether it's about wind, as we've been discussing today, or oil and gas or increasingly solar energy. Texas is a, a very energy-rich place. And the two books I've been reading, um, neither of them address energy directly, uh, but they're both about Texas history in ways that are really wonderful. So the first book is called News of the World by Paulette Giles. This was actually recommended to me by friend and colleague Amy Pickle at Duke University and this is a wonderful book about a young girl and an older man uh, sort of traveling across Texas and getting to know each other the second book has been out for a while but i'm just starting to read it now it's called the sun By Philip Meyer, uh, S-O-N. And it's also a book about Texas history, about a family um, uh, in Texas that spans generations. I think there's actually a TV show now based on the book called The Sun, starring Pierce Brosnan, which I have uh, have not watched, but the book itself is quite wonderful. So so both of those books I'd really recommend, especially if you want to learn a little bit about Texas, uh, News of the World and The Sun. So now over to Jay. Jay, what's uh, at the top of your literal or metaphorical uh, reading stack?
1: Well, I'm sure it's a common one, but I'm such a huge David Attenborough fan. I've seen Blue Planet and Planet Earth and Life and Human Planet and Frozen Planet. So of course, right now I'm watching uh, Our Planet um, on Netflix. Uh, one of the things I think is interesting about it is all of his, you know, or all of his recent um, programs have at least sort of touched on climate change, the impacts of, uh, of people and the environment. But with this program, it's, it's really the sort of the, you know, the, the core emphasis of it. Uh, and I think having, having visuals, one, it shows you the magnitude of, uh, of the change. Um, you know, and I think it also, by showing these fantastic places, it really you know, gives you reason to care. It gives you a, sort of a sense of their value. Um, but I think that one of the sort of the questions it poses to me that I find really interesting is you know, to what extent can animals and plants um, adapt you know, in a pretty short period of time? Um, so where will we see adaption? Where will we just see loss? I think that's a, a really um, depressing but important scientific question you know, with respect to the environment. Fantastic. Um, great. Well, Jay Bartlett, thank you again so much for joining us
0: and uh, being with us today on Resources Radio. We really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.